This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child death and infanticide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Forensic pathologist Dr. Linda Norton warned her clients that her fee for providing testimony on sudden infant death was steep, $1,600 a day. But when she explained to the jury exactly how infanticide could be disguised as SIDS, DA William Fitzpatrick saw that she was worth every penny. Thanks to Norton's testimony, 34-year-old Stephen Vanderslice was convicted of murder on October 1, 1986. He had staged his children's accidental deaths so that he could collect on insurance policies in their names. That night at dinner, Fitzpatrick toasted Dr. Norton, but she cut his celebrations short, saying, You have another SIDS homicide in this county, another serial killer right here in Syracuse. Fitzpatrick frowned as he swallowed his champagne. He still wanted to enjoy his victory lap, but Norton continued, It's a famous case. Take a look. Pediatrics, October 1972. Emotionally exhausted by the Vanderslice case and not ready to delve into more SIDS talk, Fitzpatrick turned his attention to cutting his steak and the meal moved on. But Norton's comment stuck with him. He found the article in Pediatrics, but the mother, who Norton suggested was a murderer, was identified only as Mrs. H. Then, in 1992, six years later, D.A. Fitzpatrick finally got the puzzle piece he needed. Two decades after her five children's deaths, the criminal investigation of Juanita Hoyt could finally begin. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. 
But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. Today, we're continuing our discussion of Juanita Hoyt, a serial killer who disguised her children's murders as sudden infant death syndrome. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Last week, we covered Juanita Hoyt's childhood and adolescent years in upstate New York in the 1950s. Called Nita by her family and friends, she was the fifth of six children. Nita was a quiet, inward child who struggled to be noticed in the large brood. Possibly as a way to garner attention, friends and relatives recall Nita's tendency to broadcast her minor ailments and exaggerate the symptoms. Despite her quiet nature, she demanded a lot of attention from those around her. Based on these accounts, it's very likely that Nita suffered from factitious disorder imposed on self, previously called Munchausen syndrome. When she later had children, she likely transferred her symptoms onto them, known as factitious disorder by proxy. Nita's children were frequently ill, in and out of the hospital, garnering her even more sympathy and attention than when she herself was sick. When each of her children died, the role of grieving mother garnered the most concern of all. But all five deaths were labeled as natural. No one was calling Nita Hoyt what she was, a murderer until D.A. William Fitzpatrick uncovered her crimes in 1992. This week, we'll see how he was able to piece together the clues and build a criminal investigation into the children's deaths. We'll also cover the subsequent criminal trial that outed Nita as a cold-blooded killer. After losing their fifth baby, 25-year-old Nita and 28-year-old Tim Hoyt decided to try adoption, and on November 9, 1971, they welcomed nine-month-old Scotty into their family. But the baby was with them for less than a week before Nita began demanding that her husband take Scotty away from her. She was terrified she was going to hurt him. Tim eventually grew so concerned, he called psychiatric services. Her therapist, Dr. Mokarum Joffrey, suggested that Nita return Scotty to the adoption agency. When she called the agency, she said that someone needed to come pick up the baby, quote, before I do it harm. Alberta Weiss, who worked for the adoption agency, later explained in Richard Firstman and Jamie Tallon's book, The Death of Innocence, she might have been able to get away with five natural children, but she couldn't say, Oh, guess what? Scotty stopped breathing. I felt we had very narrowly averted a tragedy. Nita continued seeing Dr. Joffrey, and he prescribed her medication for depression and anxiety, though it does not appear that he diagnosed her with any form of factitious disorder. In fact, Joffrey himself likely fed into those same emotional needs that caused her factitious disorder in the first place. 
Vanessa's going to take over on Nita's psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. For many sufferers of factitious disorder, the attention and validation of doctors is especially gratifying. In an article on factitious disorder case studies, doctors Adria C. Savino and John S. Fordtran wrote, the traditional doctor-patient relationship is a cooperative and complementary partnership in which the patient and physician respectively fulfill their obligations and privileges as prescribed by society. In patients suffering from factitious disorder, disease simulation is central to their emotional life and their relationship to doctors may be as intense as addiction. In Dr. Joffrey, Nita found a captive audience for her many complaints and a guaranteed source of sympathy. And just as her physical ailments were all over the map, so were her emotional ones. In their initial sessions after giving up Scotty, Nita seemed at peace with her decision. She was still burdened with so much grief over losing her own babies. She was also grateful to have more time available to spend with Tim. But then, on the anniversary of one of her deceased children's birthdays, she railed to Dr. Joffrey about how angry she was with Tim for getting a vasectomy, ending their ability to grow their family. In yet another appointment, she contemplated getting a hysterectomy. It doesn't appear that Joffrey addressed the reasons behind these pendulum swings. Instead, he wrote in his session notes, the only reason that came out seems not as a measure of contraceptive, but, in my opinion, in self-mutilation, especially the organ which did not give her what she wanted. When her depression appeared to worsen after a few months of treatment, Dr. Joffrey suggested that Tim join Nita at her next appointment. The following week, the three of them discussed Nita's emotional needs. She complained that everything reminded her of the past she couldn't move on as long as she was living in the trailer where four of her five children died. Tim was sympathetic, but they simply didn't have the money to move. Then, several months after the appointment, their trailer burned to the ground. The fire started while Nita was home alone. She told police that she didn't know what happened. She thought maybe it was the furnace which she'd adjusted earlier in the day. The official cause in the police report was listed as unknown. While some in the Hoyt family were suspicious that Nita set the fire herself, police never considered her as a suspect. Dr. Teresa A. Gannon wrote in her study of female arsonists that women represent just 14% of the overall convicted arsonist population. In fact, so few arsons are committed by women that it's a widely accepted false opinion of police that arsonists are exclusively male. Gannon also proposed that the percentages may be skewed by a societal tendency to treat female criminals less harshly than their male counterparts. If Nita set the fire intentionally, she may have counted on this leniency. She had experienced that lack of consequences in the past, notably in the murders of her children. Gannon also wrote that when women commit arson, it's a part of a wider criminal repertoire of offending. In the wake of the fire, Nita got what she wanted. The insurance payout was enough to buy a new trailer. 
But as was so often the cycle, she was mollified for a few months, then found a new way to act out. One day in the spring of 1972, Tim Hoyt called his sister-in-law, Loretta, in the middle of the workday in a panic. Nita was threatening to harm herself, and he needed Loretta to drive over and make sure she didn't do anything stupid. Loretta obliged and rushed over to their trailer. When she knocked on the door, her heart was pounding. She was terrified. What was she going to say? What if she couldn't convince Nita not to hurt herself? But when Nita opened the door to the trailer, she was all smiles. As Charles Hickey described in his book, Goodbye, My Little Ones, she invited Loretta inside, poured her tea, and the two women spent the afternoon playing cards. Loretta was floored and confused. Tim had told her how upset Nita was, and here they were laughing not half an hour later. This pattern repeated a few more times that spring. Tim would call Loretta in a panic, saying Nita was making threats. But when Loretta got there, she was fine. On one occasion, they went for a pleasant afternoon drive. Loretta found herself wondering if she was actually helping the situation or making it worse. Eventually, she refused one of Tim's pleas to go check on his wife. She told him, you have to call her bluff. No matter what she does, she has her own mind. It's not your fault, and don't take the blame. Loretta was more right than she knew. Psychologist Paul Joffe said at a national conference on depression on college campuses that, in some cases, suicide threats are used to control personal relationships and manipulate others. When a person threatens to take their life, it's tantamount to saying, well, you have to help me because the stakes are so high and my life is on the line. Nita, in the end, never took any action to harm herself. After Loretta stopped responding, Nita eventually stopped threatening. As the years progressed, Nita's factitious behavior continued. Her frequent doctor visits and medical bills racked up so much debt, she and Tim filed for bankruptcy three different times. In addition, Nita accused a neighbor of sexually assaulting her in June of 1974. However, the charges were eventually dropped after she refused to cooperate with police. A few of the Hoyt siblings believed the incident was completely fabricated. Tim and Nita also lost a second trailer to a house fire. Once again, Nita was home alone when it happened, and the cause was never determined. But she was finally able to break the cycle in one area of her life. On September 20, 1976, the Hoyts adopted a two-month-old boy named Jay. And unlike the biological Hoyt children, Jay would survive past his third birthday and beyond. Hypervigilant about apnea-induced SIDS, for the entire first year, 33-year-old Tim and 30-year-old Nita took turns staying up all night to watch him sleep. In addition, Tim's mother stayed glued to Nita's side for the first few years of Jay's life. No one said it out loud, but it was clear to Tim's siblings that their mother was there to watch Nita more than the baby. Nita's only blip was in March of 1987, when Jay was 11 years old. He'd just gotten a puppy, and the resulting noise and mess grated her nerves. 
40-year-old Nita drove to an emergency psychiatric clinic for help. She checked the yes boxes next to all 19 mental health problems listed on the intake assessment form. But by the next month, when she came back for a follow-up visit, Nita's mental condition had greatly improved. Jay's dog had gotten loose and was run over by a car. Nita felt guilty, but also relieved. After so many years of anguish and suffering, the Hoyt family of three seemed like they'd finally made it. Until March 23, 1994, when the police approached 47-year-old Juanita Hoyt while she was out running some errands. They asked if she would come to talk to them at the station. They had some questions about how her children had died. Nita had some explaining to do. Coming up, the police build a murder case against Juanita Hoyt. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In October of 1972, Pediatrics Magazine published a landmark article on sudden infant death syndrome written by Dr. Alfred Steinschneider. The article detailed his research on the connection between SIDS and sleep apnea. Two of the Hoyt's deceased children, Molly and Noah, had taken part in Dr. Steinschneider's study. The details of their family history, treatment, and subsequent deaths were featured in the article, as well as three other babies who all lived. All parties mentioned were identified only by their initials. Even though babies with the initials MH and NH had passed away, Dr. Steinschneider included their cases to exemplify what he termed near-miss SIDS. Both children suffered multiple apneic episodes, but were able to be resuscitated by their mother, until their final episodes, of course. But because of the near-miss phenomenon, he impressed the need for sleep apnea monitors in every crib, especially in families who previously lost a child to SIDS. He suggested that there was a genetic link causing the condition, citing the five Hoyt deaths. The findings of the article were praised and widely adopted. One of the main reasons society at large latched onto his findings was because he provided what appeared to be a concrete cause for a condition that for so long had mystified parents and doctors. But while most pediatricians rapidly accepted his findings, some found five cases of SIDS in a single family to be outrageous. Dr. Stuart Ash also studied SIDS, but from a psychiatric perspective, notably the effect of infant death on parents. In his own findings, he suggested that as many as 20% of SIDS deaths were actually infanticide. And he saw some troubling signs of such mislabeling in the published facts about Molly and Noah Hoyt. In a letter to Dr. Steinschneider, Dr. Ash wrote, 
I was struck by the fact that neither of these infants had serious apneic episodes while under observation in the hospital despite long periods of hospitalization. Serious apneic episodes and the eventual deaths all occurred within 24 to 48 hours after discharge and presumably with a clean bill of health. But Dr. Steinschneider wouldn't entertain any such concerns, far too protective of his research. He wrote back a scathing response, implying that Dr. Ash was blind to the emotions of grieving parents and shamed him for implying that they had done something to their children. Outside of these personal correspondences and a few letters to the editor of Pediatrics, Dr. Steinschneider's findings weren't challenged by the medical community until 1983, when forensic pathologist Dr. Linda Norton published an article examining child abuse in clinics in laboratory medicine. As summarized in Goodbye, My Little Ones, the 22-page article called out pediatricians' blatant unwillingness to connect the dots of child abuse. She laid out several case studies of doctors who had fruitlessly searched for medical answers to problems inflicted by abusive parents. Parents who lied about the source of their child's injury or circumstances of their deaths. She wrote, it is the continued refusal of the physicians to disbelieve the clinical history given by caretakers that allows child battering and even more subtle forms of child abuse and homicide to go undetected. If the physician is to assume an active role in treating this problem, he must first come to grips with the fact that parents who, for whatever reason, injure or kill a child, will lie. Her paper agreed with Dr. Stuart Ash's hypothesis that cases of infanticide were misdiagnosed as SIDS. While she did agree that there was a demonstrated link between SIDS and apnea, she pointed out that there are many causes of apnea, including smothering by an adult. Furthermore, she questioned the supposed genetic link in families with multiple SIDS cases. She argued that doctors perpetuated that rumor in defiance of more recent genetic studies because they couldn't handle the greater implication that multiple smotherings could happen in the same family. She referenced that blind spot specifically in Dr. Alfred Steinschneider's pediatrics article. She concluded, there is no way for the pathologist at autopsy to distinguish between homicidal smothering and SIDS. Much like Dr. Ash, Dr. Norton's paper received a lot of pushback, but she was validated by the 1986 murder trial of 34-year-old Stephen Vanderslice. He was accused of smothering three of his children and disguising their deaths as SIDS for insurance payouts totaling $50,000. Dr. Norton's expert testimony was extremely influential in his guilty conviction, sending Vanderslice to prison for 25 years to life. After the case concluded, Dr. Norton spoke with the prosecutor on the case, William Fitzpatrick, about the H family chronicled in Dr. Steinschneider's pediatrics article. She suspected that Mrs. H was a serial child killer. Because Steinschneider's SIDS research lab was located in Syracuse, ostensibly the case would fall in Fitzpatrick's jurisdiction. He should do something about it. Fresh off the Vanderslice trial and exhausted, 
Fitzpatrick took the information under advisement but didn't act on it. Soon after, he left the district attorney's office and went into private practice. For the time being, Norton's tip went uninvestigated. But the case stuck with Fitzpatrick. When he eventually read the Steinschneider article, he knew Dr. Norton was right. So when Fitzpatrick was elected district attorney of Onondaga County in November of 1991, uncovering the identity of Mrs. H was at the top of his priority list. Though the details of how he made the discovery that NH stood for Noah Hoyt were never revealed, once he had the baby's name, Fitzpatrick was able to subpoena his medical records. And finally, in March of 1992, 22 years after Noah's death, Mrs. H was identified as Juanita Hoyt. Fitzpatrick quickly issued subpoenas for the other four children's medical records and started building his case. But he hit a roadblock immediately. Though Dr. Steinschneider's SIDS lab was in Syracuse, part of Onondaga County, Tim and Juanita Hoyt were residents of Newark Valley in Tioga County. The case was not his jurisdiction after all. Disappointed, he picked up the phone and called the district attorney of Tioga County, Bob Simpson. After introducing himself and a few minutes of small talk, Fitzpatrick laid it out. He had compelling evidence that a woman in his county had murdered five children nearly two decades ago. He walked Simpson through Dr. Norton's tip, the pediatrics article, and Noah Hoyt's autopsy report. Simpson took it all in and said he would look into it himself, but the rural DA wasn't entirely convinced. The Tioga police weren't blind to murder, and, he thought, surely the tight-knit community would have raised the alarm if there was a murderer in their midst. Simpson needed to find proof for himself that the Hoyt children were the victims of foul play. Simpson enlisted a few state policemen to look into it. They kept the investigation quiet, not wanting to tip off the Hoyts or any of their many relatives in the area. After a few months, the troopers were as unconvinced as D.A. Simpson that anything was amiss. When Fitzpatrick followed up in July of 1992, hardly any progress had been made. Simpson later admitted this was likely due to his own lack of knowledge about this quiet method of killing. He said, I understand bullet wounds, and I understand knifings, and I understand poisons and stuff like that, but I had no knowledge of apnea or SIDS or any of these things. So he sent the Hoyt children's medical records and autopsy reports to forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Bodden the head of New York State's Forensic Sciences Unit. If there was anything criminal to discover, Baden would find it. But the months stretched on. 1992 became 1993. Fitzpatrick grew impatient and wrote Simpson another prodding letter on July 7, 1993. If Simpson wasn't up to the task, he was happy to investigate the deaths himself. But Bob Simpson reassured him that progress was being made. Dr. Bodden had finally returned his assessment of the Hoyt children's medical records, and he agreed with Fitzpatrick's suspicions. They were just waiting for another forensic pathologist to confirm homicide. In addition, the top senior investigator in Tioga County had just been reassigned to the case. 
Bob Courtright had been a trooper for nearly 40 years and a former Marine, he approached every case with methodical discipline. His uncanny ability to follow his hunches and connect the dots in investigations had earned him the nickname Dalai Lama. As he pored over the details of the Hoyt case, the Lama felt a growing hunch. He said in The Death of Innocence, I just couldn't buy Jimmy's death, not one bit. He's two and a half, he comes running, screams out, dies. And Julie? Choked on rice cereal. I mean, if you're feeding a baby that's choking, you take care of it. It's the whole picture. Five in one family. Something's wrong here. On November 24, 1993, D.A. Simpson, D.A. Fitzpatrick, pathologist Dr. Bodden, and investigator Courtright all gathered in Simpson's office to discuss their collective findings and plan a strategy for prosecuting Juanita Hoyt. They also conferenced in Dr. Janice Opoven, a forensic pathologist who was a leading expert in childhood death. She ratified Dr. Bodden's findings and the Lama's hunch that the Hoyt children had been murdered. To her, the biggest piece of evidence was Nita's repeated descriptions of her children turning blue, a phenomenon called cyanosis, after their fatal apnea spells. She explained, A SIDS baby's heart and lungs shut down at the same time, which means the child doesn't turn blue. Cyanosis occurs when the heart continues to pump blood after the oxygen supply is cut off. That's what happens when babies are smothered. Courtright, a career cop, was still unconvinced. What kind of motive did Nita have to do this? Unlike Stephen Vanderslice, none of the children had any life insurance policies, so this wasn't about money. The llama was at a loss. Doctors Baden and Opoven proposed that Nita suffered from factitious disorder by proxy. They argued that she displayed a few classic symptoms. She was always alone when the children died, and she had above-average medical knowledge, often reading medical journals at home. In addition, a study in the Textbook of Pediatric Psychosomatic Medicine reported that nearly half of those who feign illness in children also feign illness in themselves. Nita had suffered from every malady in the book and liked nothing more than to tell people all about it. As Courtright listened to the symptoms they described, he thought about his own findings. He knew that the Hoyts carried a significant amount of debt, primarily from medical bills for both Nita and the children. Multiple times, the children had been deemed well enough to leave the hospital, then readmitted shortly after they suffered a dramatic near-miss spell while in their mother's care. With the details settled, the group had decisions to make. Everyone in the room felt convinced of Nita's guilt, but was it enough to convince a jury? D.A. Fitzpatrick had seen jurors tune out when there was too much medical jargon with too many syllables, words like factitious disorder by proxy. With the evidence at hand, they decided there was only one way forward. They needed to know exactly what happened to the children. It was time to interrogate Juanita Hoyt. Coming up, Juanita Hoyt answers questions about a 20-year-old murder. Now, the conclusion of our story. In January of 1994, 
senior investigator Bob Courtright prepared to interview a suspected murderer, 47-year-old Juanita Hoyt. He approached the forthcoming conversation with the same study and determination as every aspect of his police investigations. He read about the murder case of Mary Beth Tinning, who confessed in 1987 to murdering her nine children after their deaths had been labeled as SIDS. Courtright reached out to the arresting officer who took Mary Beth's confession, looking for any tips for when he sat down with Nita. The officer grew up with Mary Beth, so it had helped that they had a pre-existing relationship. He also recommended that Courtright question Tim and Nita separately. He stressed that the most important element was making Nita feel comfortable, provide her with food and water when she wants, take breaks if she needs. Not only will she be more likely to talk, but no one could argue that she was coerced. With this advice in mind, Courtright laid out the following strategy. State Trooper Bob Bubba Bleck would be the one to approach Nita. He would ask her to come to the station and answer questions. It was very important that Nita came willingly. Placing her under arrest would only scare her. Bubba Bleck had patrolled Newark Valley for years, so everyone in the small town knew him. Courtright hoped that he would be the necessary, familiar face to ease her into opening up. In addition, Courtright would sit in on the interrogation, but he wouldn't ask the questions. That job fell to investigator Susan Mulvey, she was experienced in interrogations with 15 years on the force, and she had a daughter of her own. She'd be able to play a maternal card Courtright didn't have in his deck. They set their plan into motion on Wednesday, March 23, 1994. It had been nearly two years since D.A. Fitzpatrick first picked up the phone and informed D.A. Simpson he had a murderer loose in his county. At 10 a.m. on the 23rd, Courtright, Bleck, and Mulvey drove to the Hoyts' home. But as they approached the trailer, they saw a truck in the driveway that they assumed was Tim's. Following the advice he gathered from the Mary Beth Tinning case, Courtright didn't want to interview Tim and Nita together. So he kept driving past the house. They went back to the police station to regroup. They decided to call Tim's employer. Once they could confirm he was at work, they'd go back and get Nita alone. If he was homesick, they'd try another day. But just then, Bleck saw Nita walk out of the post office next door. He hurried outside and said hello and made a little small talk, playfully chastising her for not dressing warmly enough. As Courtright watched from inside, he couldn't believe the woman he was looking at was in her late 40s. She looked retirement age. She had a large growth under one of her arms, huge, thick glasses, and had lost nearly all of her hair. The pretty black curls from her youth had been reduced to thin, scattered wisps. After a few minutes, Nita agreed to go with Bleck inside the station. He introduced Sue Mulvey as a friend from the police academy. He explained that she had some questions about the deaths of her children. She had read Dr. Steinschneider's article about Molly and Noah and wanted to talk about it. Mulvey added, we want to know as much as we can about how your children lived and died to prevent this from happening again. With that explanation, Nita agreed to answer their questions, but she needed to make a stop at home first. 
She wanted to make sure her now teenage son, Jay, had gotten up and gone to school. She also wanted to pick up a photo album of the children. She needed it with her as she answered their questions to help her remember. After the detour, Nita, Mulvey, Bleck, and Cartwright headed into one of the interrogation rooms at the police station shortly after 10.30 a.m. Bleck pulled out the standard-issue Miranda warning card and read Nita her rights, which she promptly waived. Knowing her factitious disorder background, Mulvey started with Nita's own medical history. Nita happily took her through her many chronic illnesses, as well as the history of her marriage to Tim. Then they moved on to the children. Nita, with tears in her eyes, showed Mulvey the photos of each of her babies while she explained how they all died from SIDS. Mulvey just listened and periodically extended Nita her sympathies. Cartwright sat silently to the side, keeping detailed notes of Nita's descriptions of the children's deaths. Though she gave generally the same details she'd given for the last 20 years, he did notice a few discrepancies. If she didn't confess in the end, these subtle differences might be useful. They took a break from questioning around 1 p.m. for lunch. Mulvey slipped away to consult with DAs Fitzpatrick and Simpson, who watched everything behind the two-way mirror. They were pleased with how smoothly the morning had gone and how readily Nita had cooperated so far, but she wasn't budging from her explanation that her children died of SIDS. Mulvey sensed that it was time to push her. D.A. Simpson, who would have to answer for the results of this move at trial, chewed on his mustache as he considered. If Nita balked or demanded a lawyer, they had gained nothing new. But if she walked without telling them what really happened to her kids, they still had nothing new anyway. He gave the go-ahead. Nita, Mulvey, Bleck, and Cartwright returned to the interrogation room. This time, Mulvey took the seat next to Nita instead of across the table. As described in Goodbye, My Little Ones, she took Nita's hand in hers and said, Mrs. Hoyt, we know what you told us about the deaths of your children isn't true. We know you caused the deaths of your children. The effect of her words on Nita was immediate. She yanked her hand away. Her face reddened, and she accused Mulvey of tricking her into talking. But the investigator held firm. Keeping her voice calm, she continued, I told you we've spoken with doctors and we wanted to know how your children died. Now I'm telling you those doctors have told us that your children did not die the way you say. With that, Nita shut down, defiant. She crossed her arms and told Mulvey to talk to Dr. Steinschneider. He'd tell her everything. Mulvey countered that she wanted Nita to tell her the truth. The interrogation devolved into a silent stalemate. Mulvey shifted gears, back to the sympathetic ear who had spent three hours listening to Nita's litany of medical issues, who'd looked at every photo of her deceased children. She told Nita that she could understand how something like this might have happened. She was a mom herself, and she understood how overwhelming and exhausting it was to raise kids. She put a comforting hand on Nita's shoulder. Nita broke down into tears. Then she said, 
I don't know how many times I've asked God to forgive me. Courtright had to keep himself from smiling at the other end of the room. Fitzpatrick and Simpson silently celebrated behind the two-way glass. She was going to tell them everything. Nita continued to sob. She said, You're all going to hate me. Everyone's going to hate me. Tim will hate me. He'll just throw me in the gutter. Black told her not to worry. He would talk to Tim. Another of Cartwright's careful precautions paid off, and Nita launched into her confession. She admitted that she killed all five of her children and described their deaths one by one. Eric, the first, she smothered with a couch pillow. He was crying and she wanted him to stop. It was the same with Julie, who died at 48 days. She needed her to stop crying, so she pressed the baby's face against her shoulder until she stopped breathing. Two-year-old Jimmy wouldn't stop bothering Nita while she was getting dressed in the bathroom one morning. She described how he kept trying to come in, shouting and crying, Mommy, Mommy. She grabbed a bath towel and chased him down the hallway into the living room. Then she used the towel to smother him. In the struggle, Jimmy got a bloody nose from the force of the towel over his face. After he died, she picked him up and ran outside for help. Molly died the day after she was discharged from Dr. Steinschneider's lab. Nita pressed a pillow from the crib onto Molly's face. She killed Noah the same way. On March 23, 1994, over two decades after their deaths, Nita Hoyt detailed her children's murders in less than 20 minutes. But the victory was short-lived. After Mulvey wrote out her confession, Nita refused to sign it unless Tim was present. Without her signature, any capable defense lawyer would argue that the confession wasn't genuine. There was no video or tape recording to corroborate it. While Nita was being interrogated that morning, other officers had gone to Tim's work to question him separately. Based on their conversation, they didn't think Tim had any involvement in the kids' deaths, nor any suspicions that Nita had done anything to harm them. When they brought him back to the police station, as Nita had requested, she repeated everything to him that she'd confessed to. But he refused to believe her, accusing the police of making her say those things. But Nita assured Tim she had smothered their five children. Her husband was dumbstruck, but loyal to a fault. He hugged Nita and told her that he still loved her. Then they both signed the written statement. Perhaps finally realizing the gravity of the police machinations around her, Nita added an addendum to her confession, writing, I was seeking psychiatric help because I knew that something was wrong with me. I feel that if I got help from them, it would have prevented me from killing the rest of my children. I feel I am a good person, but I know that I did wrong. I loved my children. I feel the burden I have carried by keeping the secret of killing my children has been a tremendous punishment. I most definitely feel remorse and regret my actions. 
She also added that Tim had no part or knowledge, and she was always alone. After signing the addendum, Nita was booked and taken for fingerprinting. She spent the night in jail after answering yes to 11 of 17 standardized questions assessing suicide risk, a guard stood outside her cell all night as a precaution. And the very next day, she recanted her statement. She asked a nurse who came to check on her mental health why she was in jail. She didn't do anything wrong. Dr. Steinschneider said that her children died of SIDS and that's what happened. When she was arraigned that afternoon, Nita entered a not guilty plea. She and Tim were able to put up enough money for bail, and she was released soon after. Nita went to church that Sunday and found that nobody hated her. Everyone saw her as a quiet, woeful, tragic figure, not a serial killer. Some felt she had been manipulated into writing that statement. Lisa Jean Hefner was a local minister who had comforted the Hoyts through several tragedies over the years. She said to a reporter covering the trial, nothing is going to bring those kids back now. In the meantime, we destroyed Jay and Tim and Juanita's lives. What sense is that? Others who had known Nita closely for years knew she was guilty the moment they read the symptoms of factitious disorder printed in the newspaper. The Hoyt siblings agreed. It was Nita to a T. At her trial in August of 1995, DA Bob Simpson knew this would be a tough case, but he hoped that the jury would see what everyone else involved in the investigation had seen. Juanita Hoyt had lied for attention. She'd killed for attention. Now, she had the undivided attention of the New York justice system. The proceedings were fairly straightforward, lasting a little less than a month. Simpson called doctors Bodden and Ophoven to the stand to explain their findings to the jury. Simpson asked Ophoven to describe the survival reflexes of babies to squash the argument that Nita had smothered the children accidentally. Would they have fought back? Dr. Ophoven explained, if you do something to babies that they don't like, they let you know instantly. And if it's a big thing they don't like, they arch their backs, they get mad right away. They may not have the power to do much about it, but they will immediately react if they can't get air. An infant will respond by moving as much and as hard as they can in an attempt to get whatever is in the way out of the way. Investigators Mulvey and Cartwright testified about the events of March 23rd, when Nita confessed. Cartwright, a former Marine, had to stop halfway through reading the written confession because he was holding back tears. The defense, in turn, called Dr. Alfred Steinschneider to the stand. Just as Nita argued, the doctor was a leading expert on SIDS, and he said that her children died naturally. But D.A. Simpson, who was now an expert himself on SIDS, used a stack of more recent SIDS research to poke holes in Steinschneider's outdated 1972 article. He also compelled Dr. Steinschneider to admit that he was unaware of the police investigation into Jimmy Hoyt's death, and that may have affected his actions had he known. When the jury returned their verdict on April 22, 1995, 
they found Juanita Hoyt guilty of five counts of reckless murder. She was sentenced to 75 years in prison, 15 years for each death. As the charges were read, the names of each deceased child spoken out loud, almost everyone in the courtroom started to cry. Nita, the jury, even the judge. After the proceedings, D.A. Simpson said to the gathered reporters, I hope some of the tears that were shed today were shed for Molly and Noah, Julie, James, and Eric, not just Juanita Hoyt, the five children who were murdered because they cried. After imagining and self-inflicting illnesses for most of her life, Nita Hoyt's 75-year sentence was cut short by a very real disease. In early 1998, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She died on August 13, 1998, at age 52, after only three years in prison. Many of the investigators involved in the case saw her swift death to a painful disease as divine karmic justice, a punishment sent from God himself. But for D.A. Fitzpatrick, it made him realize how close they had come to letting Nita get away with murder. Doctors and police ignored the warning signs for 20 years. He had delayed justice himself by ignoring Dr. Norton's tip. They'd very nearly allowed Nita to die, the portrait of a grief-stricken mother. Instead, Tim and Jay Hoyt knew the truth about the woman they buried. And in the wake of Nita's highly publicized trial, more and more cases of infanticide disguised as SIDS were uncovered. And while the tragic cause of actual cases of SIDS remains unsolved, it can no longer be used as an alibi for murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals, we will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Female Criminals is written by Abigail Cannon and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye.